0: Tonight on the DTD podcast, it's 2021, and I am so excited. We are kicking off the new year with a fantastic guest. He was a ranger, a special forces soldier, an investigative journalist. I cannot wait to get into this. Tonight on the DTD podcast, Jack Murphy. Let's get right into it. Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? Is this not why you are here? How about new? you crazy dutch bastard? What we've got here is... Failure to communicate.
1: 60% of the time, it works every time. That doesn't make sense.
0: Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. I award you no points and may God have mercy on your
1: soul. That's cute. I remember when I had my first beer. Why so serious? I am serious. Now don't call me serious.
0: What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the DTD Podcast. Like I said before, it's 2021, and we're kicking this fucker off with a bang. We have someone that I have been so excited to get in here. I think we've been talking for like a month and a half to get him in here. He has a fantastic book. Uh, Well, he has a lot of fantastic books, but he has a memoir of his life where he speaks really with a lot of candor about him him being a soldier, him being a journalist, a father, a husband, a boyfriend, all different kinds of things. So without further ado, let's get right into it. Jack, thank you for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, I I am super excited about this. Uh, I read your book and I I was, there was a lot of different feelings that I had for it. One that I I I was just blown away by how candid you talked about yourself in it, because a lot of people don't do that because they look and you talk about it a little bit in the book. A lot of people say, I'm a soldier. I'm a warrior. I'm this, I can't show weakness. I can't show that I messed things up or that I did things wrong. And you talk about it a lot in here about you have to be human or it will destroy you.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, Without, you know, I'm not going to name names or anything, but I mean, there are some really tough guys out there, some very professional soldiers who I have a lot of respect for. And, but I know just through my own knowledge and, and knowing them on a personal level, these are big badasses, but they they struggle with life in, in other areas, Um, you know, personal relationships, transitioning into civilian life. I mean, all of those things are very real. And, you know, I, I think that when you write a book or you have the opportunity to write a memoir, um, we really have kind of an obligation to be honest with people uh, about those experiences, especially for all the the young um, teenagers out there who are thinking about joining the military. I, I mean, I really think that we need to give them the real deal.
0: Well, and you talk about that. So let's get right into it. It's at the end of the book, but let's talk about that for a minute. You talked about if yeah. an officer retires out of the military and they write a book, it's called a memoir. Uh, And then if an enlisted guy gets out and writes one, it's an expose, as I I think you called it, uh, or or it creates some kind of scandal. Uh, I don't think people that haven't been in the military know that I believe it, too. But, you know, it's been a long it's been over 20 years since I was in. But there's there is very much when I was in a very much difference in the rank structure when you're an Mm -hmm. officer and when you're enlisted. So if you can talk a little bit about that, because you hit on it uh, quite a few times in the book.
1: Yeah, there still is. I mean, it, it's essentially a caste system. Um, one of the few places in America where you find that, where there there is a class system, and it's right there up in your face. And uh, I mean, the the entire NCO um, officer system is something that we inherited from Europeans. I mean, it's not it's not really necessarily an American tradition per se. Um, so it comes out of that class system. I, as far as you know, writing a book um, with Yeah, with officers, it's it's very different. And there's an entire system that's designed for them to take the credit for military successes and military victories. Um, For instance, I've had lower ranking officers, guys who are like captains, um, they were not allowed to speak to the press. And it would be only the colonels are allowed to speak to the press so that the colonel can jump right in there and he can take credit for everything um, without having to acknowledge some lowly captain or lieutenant or master sergeant sergeant first class or private right so the system is structured for an officer to take credit and maximize um his face time in front of the camera uh for the ncos it's a bit different i mean our culture is that we're supposed to be the quiet professionals we don't talk about what we've done and back to a class system i mean blue collar guys you're just brought up like you don't really talk about you know how hard something is you don't show weakness. You don't, uh, you know, you don't go around bragging about the things that you've done. And and that's something that exists in the, in the core of NCOs in the military.
0: You know, I've, I've interviewed quite a few, um, special operations guys and NCOs on this. I was an NCO when I was in, uh, it did nothing close to what you guys did, but, uh, what you notice there is those NCOs, and a lot of people don't know this, they they see the officers and they think that that's how it's handed down, but it's the NCOs that are really leading the way. They say it's the backbone of the Army, and, and they are the ones that are taking those decisions and making them work. Because as we both know, there's there's some crazy decisions and some crazy operation plans that are handed yeah. down. And these NCOs have to be able to break that down and make it work with what they have.
1: Yeah, that and the, and the NCOs, when they get handed stupid decisions, you know, the good ones, will say, Hey, listen, sir. Like, that's not the way you want to do that, man. Like that's not going to work.
0: Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and that's the whole thing. So when you saw it, let's, let's go ahead and start with your ranger school. Did you see that in ranger school the same? Because you went directly to rangers after uh, basic and stuff. You went directly to the battalion, correct?
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's correct. I, I was a option 40 guy. So right. I went from basic training, airborne school, and then ranger indoctrination.
0: And so when you got there, how long did it take you until you actually went into ranger school?
1: Not all that long. Um, probably three or four months.
0: Oh, wow. That months was,
1: or, that's pretty I mean, quick. It, it was not, yeah, most guys are in battalion for a year, year and a half before they go to ranger school. Right. And I, I went very quickly, not because I was some great guy or anything. It was just we weren't sending our unit. Uh, the sergeant major felt we weren't sending enough people to ranger school. So they had all of the privates who hadn't been take a PT test. And if you maxed out the PT test, you were going to ranger school. And I I was just in the right place at the right time. And I got sent.
0: (laughs) Now, uh, as you get to ranger school, anything that sticks out in your mind from ranger school, you talk about it in the book, but is there anything that sticks out in your mind about it?
1: The thing that sticks out predominantly in my mind was just like how grueling it was. And it's just a daily grind day after day. And, you know, without sleeping um, adequately, Um, You're still completely run down, um, but you're also going through these basic infantry tasks, um, tactics every day, and it it drills it into you. So I like everyone hates ranger school, and they go through it, including myself. Um, But looking back on it in subsequent years, um, I can really see the value in that training of that um, it, it was so repetitive that you cannot forget how to do an ambush ever in your life. I could go out and instruct how to do it today because <laughs> it's just something you're never, ever going to forget after doing it so many damn times. Right. It's, such a, it's such a difficult condition.
0: Well, and, and a lot of people think that it's, uh, I don't know what kind of school to say, but it's, it's a leadership school is what it is. Uh, I feel, do you feel the same way that it's a leadership school? It teaches you how to lead under pressure, under immense pressure.
1: Yes, it's designed, so the the I mean, for the people out there who don't know, I mean, you uh, are graded in the school and you're graded at how well you read patrols at a squad level and then a platoon level. Um, so that, yeah, in that sense, yeah, it's a leadership school. It's, you have to motivate your men and supervise your men when they're completely exhausted and they're completely cold and nobody wants to be there anymore but you have to get them up off their ass and move in and complete the, the ranger mission. Um, so yeah, in that sense, it's like the ultimate leadership school, which was something I really, really needed when I was 19. Um, not that I was like bad, really. It's just, I was very timid. I was not the type of person to get in people's faces, grabbing them by the strap of their helmets and yelling at them. Ranger school will teach you how to do that.
0: Yeah. And, <laughs> and that can go one of two ways for your peer evaluations. That can go very well for you yeah. or very much against you in your peer evaluations. Sure. (laughs) So, uh, you you go through there. uh, You I guess you get promoted to specialist, correct? When you graduate from Ranger School, Mm -hmm. you go straight to specialist. You go back, Um, and and I I, this guy gets brought up in the book a lot, Um, and I'm not sure how to say his name because it's uh, I think it's Van Van Alst. Is that?
1: Yeah, yeah, Jared Van Alst, who is my uh, platoon sergeant twice.
0: So he gets brought up, and when you mention him the first time in the book, it's a very, uh, it seemed to me, very hate-hate relationship uh, yeah. when you mention yeah, him.
1: Yeah, that's, that's pretty accurate.
0: And and as you go through the book, you start softening to him, and he starts softening to you, and he ends up being uh, something very special to you. Uh, can yeah. we talk about that relationship? Because when I first read it, I'm like, oh, he he hates this guy. This is going nowhere quickly. Um, But do you think you were maybe a little bit set up for failure in that situation? You can explain the situation, but, but think about that question while you're explaining it. Uh, Do you think you were maybe set up a little bit for failure with how they put you there?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I I do. Looking back on it, there wasn't a lot of uh, initially the, um, so Jared Van Alice was my uh, platoon sergeant when I went to sniper platoon and third ranger battalion. Um, And I was fortunate enough to receive some good training, but at least initially, there was very little coaching, teaching and mentoring going on. Um, Nobody in that platoon was really taking me under their wing and showing me what the what right looks like, what's the what's the range of way to do things here. Um, And and, in that sense, yeah, I think I was set up for failure. And at the same time, uh, Sergeant Van Allis, um, as talented as he was in many ways, I think he was deficient in some of his leadership abilities at that point and um he, he kind of led he, he tried to lead by terrifying the, his subordinates uh including myself and so i think yeah there our our relationship at least at that and during that time period was not great and um i really did not care for him um i'm not so sure that he cared for me either but we um we I mean, he fired me from that job. I, he fired me from being the uh, being a sniper in that platoon. And um I will say, you know, Jared and I, we shook hands like men and, you know, went our separate way, it wasn't like and he even told me this. He was like, Jack, like, or he said, Murphy? You know, this, this isn't like, you know, get the fuck out of my office. I never want to see you again. Right. Like, that's not going on here. Like, we're just we're sending you next door. You're going to go, you know, serve in a rifle platoon. It, so it wasn't it wasn't like that, and he wasn't vindictive like that. Um, but of course, the ultimate irony was like two days after I got to my new platoon, um, our platoon sergeant there got fired, and they said, "Hey, there's this uh, new guy coming to replace him. Uh, I think maybe you know him, Murph. Uh, his name's uh, Dan Allis. I'm like, "You've got to be fucking kidding me, man!" So he was my platoon sergeant a second time um, in uh, in first platoon, Alpha Company, Third Ranger Battalion and uh it was a, it was a very different experience this time around um and to be honest i think i carried a lot of animosity and anger inside of me for him um during that time period that i, I should have been um man enough to just kind of let go well, you know and, and you know he could because he was giving me a second chance and i think i should, probably should have given him a second chance a little bit easier than i did um but we but we still were together and and things were much better the second time around
0: well, and it almost became, well, first off, I I almost feel that that transfer to there and then his transfer to there was almost by design. I have a weird feeling how the Army works. That was almost by design.
1: Sometimes I wonder, too, um, because as I, I read about towards the end of the book, I was contacted by one of Van Alex's friends um, after he passed away. He was killed in Afghanistan, uh, I think it was 2010, And um, he told me about how Van Allis was looking over my shoulder and and trying to take care of me, um, that he thought I was a good guy. And he was was trying to, he was trying, he was basically, you know, trying to look over my shoulder in a way that I didn't understand and I didn't see, um, I wasn't aware of at the time. And looking back on it, like, Did Van Allis send me there, like, intentionally, knowing he was going to the platoon? I I really don't know. I really don't know to tell you the truth.
0: Because I'll tell you, nothing happens fast in the military. Um, And I don't think that someone was fired two days after you got there and just all of a sudden they're like, we should bring this guy over. I think that someone knew that that was getting ready to happen. I think that he really did have that kind of – I hate to compare it to this, but they always say when you're a kid and and you pull the girl's ponytails on the playground that you usually like her, you're just trying to show her any kind of attention that you can. (laughs) I almost feel like that was his relationship with you was to kind of torture you in the beginning just to show you, hey, I care. I just have a very difficult time telling you I care.
1: He he did care. He cared he cared about us and he cared about the military and he cared about his job a lot. He, he was a perfectionist. He wanted to do everything perfectly. He was one of the best um marksmen in the military. I mean really. He he won all these competitions. He served in the Army marksmanship unit. I mean, he was a very competent person. Um and, and perhaps it was that co- um being competent and being a perfectionist um was a part of why he drove some of the people around him nuts. You know, I
0: think uh, that, I, think that was- I, I definitely think that could be it. So let's move into your first deployment um, where you're mm-hmm. actually going to see um, combat uh, thoughts when you get there.
1: Um, excitement. I mean, just sheer excitement. It was something that I had been wanting to do my entire life, be a special operations soldier and, and be deployed to combat. And then there I was in Afghanistan in, in the winter of 2004. Um, yeah, I, I mean, every day was an adventure.
0: Yeah, and and you seem to um, you seem to fit in really quickly over there, uh, especially in a combat environment. You'd never been there. You were a very young guy, but you did a lot of stuff like flying on the helicopters for Overwatch and all that kind of stuff. Um, that usually doesn't go to someone as young as you, correct? I mean, that's a that's kind of a coveted position.
1: I would say again, it's kind of atypical in the sense that you know I went to uh, I went straight into Ranger Battalion, uh went right to Ranger School very quickly and then went right into sniper section right afterwards. So yeah, I, I did end up in that position fairly quickly. Mm-hmm. Um at this point I was twenty one years old. Um but at the same time Ranger Battalion is very young, it's very young and uh young men in Ranger Battalion have a lot of responsibility put on them, I I think across the board. So yeah, maybe I got there a little bit faster than I should have, but, I mean, still, you're you're going to see, you know, like 23-year-old squad leaders in Ranger Battalion. Right. So, I, I mean, it's not that um, off the wall.
0: So when you get over there and you start moving around, what's your thoughts with the people that you're working with? Not necessarily the Rangers, but uh, the in-country forces that you're working with. Um, good, bad, indifferent to them. How were you feeling about them? Because I know throughout the book, that that to me your attitude kind of changed towards that too especially when you get to the i-swat teams and training them and stuff like that uh do you feel it was the same way when you were a ranger over there do you feel it was a little different because you were pretty much willing to go you're, do whatever
1: you're talking about the uh, afghan uh right police forces worked with and right. our militaries um yeah, I, I mean, they, they were not very well trained or disciplined um, for the most part. I mean, I guess their their trigger discipline was, was, well, okay, we'll probably get into that too. All right. They were not very well trained or disciplined at all. Um, and also, it's it's a very rural environment where we were as cows. I mean, it's one of the, it's like, even then it's like the backwater of Afghanistan um, and uh, yeah, some of the,
0: um, those guys could be a little handsy with each other. Uh yeah, you mentioned that in the book. Yeah. But I think you at one point you said, "Yeah, I don't care whatever. I'll get in the vehicle with them and go if I can go out and and do it." You you said, "I don't care as long as I can get to do the job," right? Am I am I correct in that? Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah, no. I mean, it wasn't like some sort of like uh homophobic thing or or some sort of like uh xenophobia or something right. like that. It was just it's like, hey, man, I'm I'm just a kid from the suburbs in New York, and I'm in a very, very different culture now.
0: So, I want to talk about. This is what sold me on the book. Was this um, this first? Um, I'm trying to think how I want to describe it. Uh, it it's your first ambush, uh, but it's mm-hmm. but it's more. I, I don't want to just describe it as an ambush because it's kind of your first. That's like your first time in combat that you really kind of took charge yeah. of something quickly. But this is what sold me on the book was your story about this and how you talk about how you felt. So if we can start like at the beginning and move through it, this was, I think, one of the most amazing stories in the book.
1: Yeah, man, Uh, it's a it's a terrifying story, but I I think it's also pretty important to talk about um, considering, uh, you know, maybe it could help prevent uh, someone else from winding up in the same situation in the future. Um, the, the operation was um, on the Pakistan border, uh, and it was, uh, we had a recce section. So these are rangers, our, our brand new um, battalion recce section. Uh, there was also attached to it was a couple 18 Charlies, uh, mortar men, uh, bringing the mortar, the 81-millimeter you know, mortar system down with them, and then me as a sniper. And the mission was to go down to the, this area by the Pakistan border, and recon a compound that allegedly belonged to a uh, Taliban figure who had planned the ambush that Pat Tillman was killed in. Uh, now, I, I, I don't know if that guy was there or what he had to do with Pat Tillman. I, I, I can't tell you the veracity of that information or how that panned out, but um, that was what we were assigned to go and do. So we drove down there um, and the day of the mission uh, I got on one of the one of the Hiluxes. We drove up to this ridgeline, and then we set up what's called the MSS or the Mission Support Site, um, which is really just like a just think of it as like a temporary security perimeter where you're going to throw up the radio and um, and you're going to support the um, the maneuver, which in this case was a, a a recce team. It was six recce guys and one. Uh, is it a JTAC or an ETAC, I can't remember the designation exactly, but an Air Force call for fire guy, right, calling close air support. And uh, they went off on foot to go and recce the site, recce this compound. Um, while we were there at this MSS, it was me and two other Rangers, two other Americans, and then a bunch of Afghans. There were a bunch of Afghan paramilitary guys with us. Uh, while we were there, we got a a radio, um, a radio message from the patrol, from our patrol, telling us that they had eyes on 10 enemy fighters carrying AK-47s and uh, it looked like a recoilless rifle one of them was carrying. And they, they, these guys were moving down the road towards our position. So very quickly, we had to decide what we were gonna do. And believe it or not, as you know, 21-year-old Jack Murphy was pretty much the senior guy <laughs> at yeah. the scene. So- i made the decision that we were going to set up a hasty near ambush on the road Um, so rather than just let the enemy walk into the mss and take the initiative and attack us we're going to ambush them before they even get there so we took the afghans about you know maybe a dozen of them um got in a a couple vehicles we drove down the road i don't know 800 meters if that pulled the vehicles off into the wood line and then again just like ranger school got them into an ambush line down behind some cover, down behind some trees, um, laying up on the ambush uh, line on this road and waiting for the enemy to come. I, So again, it was like a dozen Afghans, then myself, and then the one other American out with me uh, was over to my right-hand side. He had a uh, embitter, which is just a little inter-team uh, FM radio. Uh, and it, it was getting intermittent, I mean, the communications were choppy. We weren't getting a, a lot of good traffic. I got down behind uh, a tree with my with my sniper rifle, with my SR-25, and uh, waited, and, you know, uh, it was kind of that moment dawned on me, you know, how real this shit was, and that I was about to be in a close firefight from, you know, about you know, 20 meters away, and there's a, a fairly strong chance I was going to die here today, uh, and then, you know, it kind of like, well, it is what it is, right? This is what you signed up for. So kinda of got down behind the gun and I don't know how much time went by, maybe a couple minutes. And I heard some rocks moving. Um, but they were not on the road down below us, right? The the uh the rocks were coming coming down on the opposite side of the road, it went up to another hill, to like another um crest, another mountain top. And I heard the rocks kinda of like rolling down that hill. And then you kind of see people or like the, uh, through the tree line, you see lots of people walking um, as they're heading downwards um, towards the MSS, kind of bypassing our entire kill zone that we had set up. So I actually had to lift up my gun and shift and move it so that I was looking uh, closer down towards the road. And I saw the first person in the order of movement. He passed very quickly through my line of sight. I could see the silhouette of the person wearing like an Afghan patrol cap, the beard, the chest rig, the gun in his hand. And he he passed out of my line of sight very quickly. I I waited and uh, a second or two later, the second person in the order of movement comes through. Again, you see that the hat, the chest rig, the gun. And I knew it's kind of now or never, like the, the decision I have to make Is do i initiate this ambush even though i'm in kind of a shitty position and these people are kind of outside our kill zone i mean at this point it's a messy ambush right this is not a ranger school ambush by any means or do i let them go now if i let them pass me they're going to run into our mission support site where there is one other ranger one other american and a handful of afghanis so i mean in my mind it's like man do i you know condemn that guy um, that's not really an option from my point of view. I have to initiate this ambush. I have to stop these guys in the tracks before they get to our teammate. So I, even though I had a, not a great shot, uh, firing downhill through some tree branches uh, at a silhouette walking in the woodline, um, you know maybe a couple hundred meters away, I took the shot, and uh, that silhouette disappeared from my view, and everything was real, real quiet for a moment and then all hell broke loose. Uh, and, you know, the Afghans all opened fire. They were in the squatting position, firing their Kalashnikovs on full auto, just spraying, just spraying uh, Kalashnikov uh, fire all over the place, hot brass flying through the air. Uh, we're, we're taking return fire at this point. So there are bullets just going all around me. There were bullets um, turning the tree I was hiding behind in the splinters and, there's like shit from the tree falling down on me and there's dirt getting kicked up in my face. Um, the other ranger with me, he's firing. Uh, and that goes on for, I don't know, 15, 20 seconds. And then one of the Afghans has a little like icon, like a little walk, like Motorola walkie talkie. And he starts jumping up and down. And I don't really understand what the hell he's saying, but I, I get the, I get the message more or less He's saying, no, no, no good. No shoot. You know, that kind of thing and uh so we called ceasefire and i can i can tell from just from the way he's talking here that like something's really gone wrong but we're not sure what and we and because our our radio is not transmitting correctly, we're not or at least it doesn't have the the range to really get good comms we are um we're, we're just in a state of kind of confusion at this point not really understanding what the hell is going on uh, me and the other rangers start kind of wondering, like, did a did a friendly Afghan patrol walk into our ambush? Was, is was there like another Afghan police unit up here? Um, what, what, like, what the hell? This is just weird at this point. So I, no, well, I, someone needs to deconflict this and figure out what's going on. So I told my my teammate up there with me. I told him like, look, dude, do not stand up. Like, you never stand up in an ambush. Like, that's the first thing. Right. You, you'll get shot and killed in two seconds. So I told him, don't, don't stand up, man, don't stand up. But nonetheless, somebody has to deconflict this whole thing. So I did the dumbass thing and uh, I stood up and I started walking down towards the road to meet my fate, whatever that was gonna be. And I ran head first into a friend of mine who was on the recce patrol, uh, a guy named Paul. Really good guy, man. Um, so I see Paul there with his big beard and everything. And, uh, and he looks at me, he's like, Murph? I look back at him and I'm like, Paul? are you doing here and he's like what the fuck are you doing here and um you know that's the story i walked down i walked with paul towards the rest where the rest of the patrol was and the patrol leader was on his hands and knees with his shirt off receiving um you know ranger first responder medic training that we all learn having uh, israeli bandages applied to his back uh he had been shot it was like a grazing wound across his shoulder blades and uh at this point it's very clear that we just had a friendly fire incident that uh that our own recce patrol that i had just answered, our recce patrol
0: and so i won't say that it goes downhill from you or for you from there uh i i think that there was definitely a lot of stuff that went through your mind um and yep. real quickly let's talk about what happened over there but then i want to get to uh at, at fort benning and i want to talk about something in specific so as you go back uh Back into, I guess you would say the rear, back into the fob, wherever, however you want to say it. Um, You have some people talk to you, but you're told that you're, you're asked some questions. They think that you answer them correctly, but you're worried that you're done. Your career is over, correct?
1: Well, yeah, and there was talk about it too. I mean, there's talk about chaptering me out of the army. There's talk about uh, kicking me out of Ranger Battalion. I mean, Ranger Battalion is very strict, um, so you expect there's going to be some horrible repercussion, whatever it is. And maybe I deserved it, you know, from my from my point of view. You know, I fucked up. And right. It was inexcusable. Um, there there are reasons why I did what I did. Um, I, I made the best tactical decisions that I, I felt I could with the information I had at the time, but. It's still a fuck up. It's still on me. I'm the one who initiated the ambush. So, yeah, for sure. I mean, it was, it was not a good time at all.
0: When you get done with all this, how do you, what's the talk inside yourself? How do you get through this? What, what, what are you saying to yourself? Because not only are people going to be hard on you, but you're going to definitely be hard on yourself.
1: Yeah, for sure. And, I mean, the thing, this is, this is what all rangers fear the most, is uh, being ostracized by their peers um you know failure yeah i mean these are these are like every every special operations guy's nightmare right and right. i had experienced that and um i you know i think part of it was that i you know as a ranger we're uh you know we're not really quitters that's not our thing so that plays into it and it was also that i, I told myself i mean i rightly uh, I knew that if I threw in the towel here, that this is something that would come to define my entire life. That if I just quit here, th- this is it. This, this is who I would be forever. Um, so I knew I had to kind of put one foot in front of my other, one foot in front of the other and continue on as best I could.
0: And and you actually say being a Ranger was at the core of your identity.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It was It was everything I had always wanted up until that point in life.
0: And so... We get done with there. We go back to Benning, and I want to read this uh, short little paragraph, and then I want to talk about that paragraph, okay? So it's in Chapter 3, and it says, One night, soon after arriving back at Fort Benning, I got drunk and could not sleep. What was I supposed to do? How could I rectify this situation? Should I leave the Army? Then I wondered, if I am a disgrace, should I kill myself? There's no instruction manual on what to do in this situation. I went to the bathroom. I looked in the mirror. I was young and full of piss of vinegar. I was determined but defeated. It was one of those moments that stick with you forever. But that was the moment I decided I wasn't going to quit. I decided that I was going to go back into the shit and keep pushing as hard as I could. I woke up in the morning having passed over some kind of threshold. I knew I couldn't control what others thought of me, but I could control myself and what I did. Now... What you're talking about there is you know that people are going to talk about you. You know you've got a target on your back now. You know that people aren't going to necessarily trust you to do what you know that you can do. And you cross over this threshold, and you just get back out there and do it. What is going through your mind? I really want to hear this because you've got to be in it every single day surrounded. And these people... You don't know who you can trust, who you can't trust. And, and, and what I mean by trust or can't trust, you don't know who's going to talk about you, who trusts you. How do you start moving through it?
1: Yeah. Um, and that's, that's absolutely correct. I mean, there were a lot of people who I was friends with or who I was friendly with and all of a sudden it's like, Hey man, you want to go get a beer one of these days? It's like, yeah, whatever, bro. You know, it is like, yeah, that definitely, um, Uh, treated as, you know, like damaged goods by quite a few people. Um, But not everybody. Um, Some people, you know, gave me a second chance, and they allowed me to continue to serve. And that's something I'm forever grateful for. But yeah, man, I mean, you chalk it up to stubbornness, you can chalk it up to, you know, uh, believing in the ranger creed, uh, that, you know, surrender is not a ranger word. Uh, You can chalk it up to just sort of being uh, young and naive. Um, but again, I mean, I knew I couldn't let this be the thing that defined who I am.
0: Do you think you ever won, not even everyone back, but the majority of people back?
1: No, no. And I I mean, to this day, um, there are still people who, who will talk about it and try to use it to this incident as something to shame me. I mean, like what, 15 years later, it's like, come on guy, like. I, like if I can get over it, I think you need to get over it. Like you're carrying around some anger inside you. you, you got to let go and, you know, look, I, I understand what I did. And I'm, you know, I'm sorry for that soldier that I hurt. Thankfully, he returned to duty and he's okay. But I mean, I, I get it. But I mean, at the, again, you can't go through the entire rest of your life um, reliving that day over and over and over again. So it's kind of like, you know, what what else do you want from me? Um and in a in a unit, um, and especially with the the struggles that we've seen so many veterans go through from the Ranger Regiment and other special operations units, I mean, bro, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. That's all I got to say.
0: <laughs> and and do you think though, and we can kind of get into that a little bit. Do you think that that is a big part of what drives? a lot of that stuff that we're talking about, the suicide rates, the not knowing what to do with themselves when they get out. Um, because if someone is still bringing that up to you 15 years later, that obviously has affected them so deeply that they can't let it go. And then you even look if they at, weren't there and ex- had nothing to do with it. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and it affected them so deeply that, that they need to make sure that you know that they know. Do you think that leads to a lot of this stuff that we see out here on the outside?
1: Yeah, yeah, because, I mean, if you weren't even there that day, if you had nothing to do with it, it's not that that incident per se affected you. It's that you're externalizing some sort of inner insecurity about your time in the military that you're carrying around. Um, It it has nothing to do with me. I mean, we're talking about people who barely know me or, or didn't know me at all. So I mean, I I refuse to believe that uh, that that incident was so traumatizing to some guy who served in Ranger Battalion. Right. Uh, eight years later, after I left, um, I don't really buy that. So yeah, I mean, it speaks to things that people carry around inside of themselves: be it shame, um, pain, you know, pain, loss. I, I I don't know. I think it's different for each person.
0: I've always felt that people from when I was in the military and and the job that I've done for my career and stuff, I always feel like those people that want to point that kind of stuff out or, or point the faults out in people are usually trying to hide something else that, that they've either done or, um, that they, that they're they The only way that they can make themselves look good is by making others look bad. And there's a difference in correction and moving forward and figuring out what you did wrong. And then, dwelling on something in order to make yourself seem more of a subject matter expert or.
1: And it's, it's that's something I came to figure out many years later after I was out of the military. And, and I started, you know, encountering those people like we would call them haters, right? <laughs> you know, people who are just hating all the time. And I I'd get upset in my, in my early days, I'd actually get upset and get pissed off about it. But I came to realize at a certain point, you know, look at the, who are these people who are saying these things about me? And I find so often there were people who wanted to be a Ranger or wanted to be a Green Beret, but quit or they never even tried. Uh, There are people who wanted to write a book, but never did. There are people who wanted to go to an Ivy League college, but they didn't or they went and they flunked out. And I mean, look, I mean, no, no drama uh, for anyone who didn't make it through uh, special forces assessment or selection In selection. I mean, that. I'm not trying to shame anybody over any of this sort of stuff. It's just like you got you got to deal with that yourself. I, I, it's not my responsibility, you know.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, as you go back over um, when you're talking about going back on a combat deployment, did you did you have a better time? Um, and I'm trying to think of the name of the city that you talk about a lot in there. I think it's Mosul. Talif- Mosul and oh, and Talafar, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So you, you talk about those a lot and you not only talk about them as a ranger, but you talk about them when you're special forces and you come back and you see the devastation that has happened in, I think it was four years difference between when you were there as a ranger and then yeah. a special yeah. forces soldier. So it was like four, four and a half years. But when you go back there. Uh, do you treat this differently than that first one? Do you look at it differently? Do you look at your fellow soldier differently? Do you look at yourself differently on this one? Do you have more, uh, do you know yourself better this second time?
1: Yes. And also it was a very different context. Now I was a team leader. um, So I was responsible for a bunch of privates. Um, I had a squad leader. Um, This, this dude, Ken was terrific, terrific guy. Um, great squad leader. Um, And yeah, when you're in charge of a bunch of privates, it just changes who you are. Um, You have a sort of a sense of responsibility. Uh, I I mean, I can honestly say, I think on that deployment, I was never really scared that I was going to get killed or something like that. I was just scared that one of these privates was going to get killed. I was just always worried that something bad would happen to one of them. And so you're trying to do your best that you can for them. And so is everyone else, so is, so is my squad leader, so is Ben Alice, my platoon sergeant, um, they all did. And, and that's why they all came home alive, uh, it really is. Um, so yeah, it was a very different context and a very different feel. Um, again, we're also, this is not anything like Afghanistan. We're in a, a fairly large city in Iraq and we were doing what's called time-sensitive targets at that time. So we were rolling out on, you know one mission a day, two missions a day, three missions a day um, that was not at all uncommon
0: and so when you do this uh, you you mentioned that that you go out on these missions you you move a lot you you hit wrong places um, there's yep. bad information coming in um, you see stuff that that you don't necessarily I don't want to say you don't agree with but you you see how things are being mishandled you start seeing that downward progression of how things are being mishandled or how they could be handled better. But once again, we go back to where command and people above don't want to hear that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah. Um, some of that stuff I could definitely see at the time and some of it, you know, I think reflecting back on it, it stands out even more. Um, but yeah, it was, it was, this was the nature of the, the counterinsurgency and counterterrorism strategy in Iraq at that time. That it was a whole find, fix, finish strategy that they were just sending us out there to hit anything that even resembled the target and hopes that that would lead to follow on intelligence. So you, you round up one bad guy um, and he tells you where some other bad guys live and so on and so on, but you kind of roll up the entire network, the entire chain. Um, and that worked to a, uh, to a large extent over time it worked, but there's also a lot of collateral damage in the process. I mean, we blew down a lot of people's doors who didn't need to have their doors blown down. We shot up a lot of cars just for being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, we, we raided a lot of targets that were just completely normal Iraqi citizens. And so looking back on it, you also have to think that, well, was it really worth it? How many insurgents did we create in the process of doing that? um people it, just get fed up you know that that you know, statement you, I mean, uh, that
0: if he's not a terrorist before he is now
1: yeah yeah and i mean we you can only imagine what if a foreign military came and occupied america and you know you know maybe maybe at first we're sitting on the sidelines like ah oh, you know they're just here to help us out but then you know they blow down your neighbor's door they kill him you know they pull your nephew out of a car beat the shit out of him on the side of a road at a certain point, you get to like, yeah, you know what? Fuck these guys. And you right. start putting IEDs on the road, blowing up their convoys, you know? And I, so I wonder how, how effective it really was at the end of the day. Uh, there, there was an effectiveness to it. I mean, by what, 2007, 8, 9? I mean, we had fought that insurgency to a standstill. And, and that is something important to point out. Special operations and all of our enablers and conventional forces, Uh, We had fought the enemy to their knees um, and and largely defeated what we called Al-Qaeda in Iraq. Um, And that was the time that was that was the moment um, where the Iraqi government really needed to step up and assert itself. And perhaps other aspects of our government could have helped out better. Um, That's that's like a whole other subject. Right. Um, But but the reality is that the Iraqi government did not stand up and assert its sovereignty and assert the rule of law. Um, it did the opposite. Everyone was just shoving dollar bills into their pockets and trying to go live in exile in Sweden. Um, so what ended up happening was, well, I mean, everyone knows the story. We left, and ISIS came to town.
0: Well, and that and that's the whole thing. That when you say that special forces really knocked these guys down, they put them out of commission, and then by us not doing the finishing job by the, not, not by any yeah. means, our military, by our government, not doing the finishing work on that by handing over the reins. Uh, you mentioned a lot in your book about, uh, just bullshit reports going up, um, about <laughs> yeah. the, oh, yeah. oh, the, yeah. the progress that's going on that, that that's the only word to describe their bullshit reports going up and they, they mm-hmm. have nothing of what's really going on. And it does a disservice to you guys who have been there on the ground, taking care of what you need to take care of with no follow-through done, because then you have ISIS come in, and you come back four years later fighting them.
1: Yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, the the Obama administration had made a decision at that point that we were going to leave Iraq. And so then what happened was that all of these officers on the ground in Iraq were essentially ordered uh, in one shape or form To send up these rosy colored reports that everything was going great, that Iraq was ready to stand on its two feet, when we all knew that it wasn't. There is a great paper out there written by um, Dr. Leonard Long. He wrote a a white paper for the War College called, uh, I believe it's called um, Lying to Ourselves, Dishonesty in the Military Profession. And what that report found, what he found when he did this study, was that the the army well first off the military has more mandatory training than there are training days on the calendar year so it's literally impossible for the units to satisfy all these training requirements but the next thing that he that came out of that a secondary finding was that all the units in the military they're reporting that they have met all those mandatory training requirements which means that all these units are lying Now the most important the next thing that we can take away from this is that what we have done is institutionalized lying in the military profession that we have raised an entire generation of officers that believe that it's okay to send up false reports to the boss they say hey we want to see x well as a junior officer you send up the report that says we satisfied that requirement and we normalized that and that's the state that the military has found itself in so like um, some of the controversy uh, a few years back when the that special forces team was ambushed in Niger, and uh, people were so angry that the uh, supposedly the CONOP, the mission order, the concept of the operations, that it included false information when it was sent up to hire. And I mean, I don't understand how anyone was shocked to hear that. I mean, every CONOP sent up to hire has false information on it. Like the senior officers literally coach, teach, and mentor junior officers on how to lie on those fucking reports so that they say whatever the brigade or division commander needs to hear to authorize the mission. So, I, I mean, this, this is our military culture now.
0: Well, and, and you know, you spoke about that. You've reported on that. Let's go back to, to Mosul and Tal Afar, though. When, when you're over there, this is where you kind of decide that it's it may be time to leave the Rangers and go to special forces. This is where the beginning of that, kind of idea came about if you can talk a little bit about that before you because i think once you get back you do a couple things and then you're right into the assessment course right yeah
1: um well so much that deployment i had a really good time in that deployment and i really enjoyed the the other rangers that i was working with at that time uh and if i could just stay in that platoon and work there forever i i would um because they were really that good Um, However, the reality of the military and the way personnel shift around is that everyone's platoons don't remain intact very long. Um, people, you know, it's just a natural progression of, of people's military careers. They go off in different directions. The the idea first kind of got into my head when I was in Ranger school and I met some special forces guys there. And then when I was shooting in an old army competition, I met some special forces guys there as well that I got to pick their brains. And then I, I think a lot of it was also some of the the repetitiveness of the training that we went through back in Garrison uh doing airfield seizures and I, I think we i think we seized the lawson airfield like 16 times while i was there uh and it just gets to a point where it's like man like i i can't see myself seizing lawson airfield for the next 12 years you know right um so there there were things that i loved about ranger battalion but also some things like what stickers they are for the rules about like not having your hands in your pockets and you know, I remember walking around the EIB, the, the expert infantry um, badge lanes when I was walking my privates through and I'm there smoking a cigar. And there's these like brainwashed ranger battalion spec fours like screaming at me, you're in violation of every army regulation Murphy. And it's like, I, I don't really care. <laughs> like, like I'm, not, I, I'm not the guy that goes around and yells at people because they're wearing the wrong color socks or the wrong color belt. Like I'm not really that guy. Um, well,
0: I think you even mentioned that in the book where you say you, uh, you die young or live long enough to become one of those guys.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. So I I couldn't see myself, um, kind of becoming that, that person. So, uh, special forces seemed like the next thing It was was the next challenge for me. It was, it was a new undertaking. So, yeah, when I got back from Iraq, I did a, a full train up. I'm trying to think now uh no i came back and i was a liaison to walter reed for a couple of weeks
0: right came with, back uh, with the soldiers that had been injured
1: yeah during our deployment and then i came back to fort benning and uh got i, I thought i was going to have a little time to prepare for special forces selection then alice is like no you're doing uh rotary or no fixed wing so we're doing airfield seizure training for like two or three weeks so i went and did that whole training exercise um, and then the very next day I was on a plane to, to Fayetteville to start, uh, SFAS at Fort Bragg.
0: Any differences between, you know, cause people that haven't been through it, um, any differences that you could tell them, because you, you talk a lot about telling these new guys that are coming in exactly, you know, the reality of it, what they should expect. Was there difference in the assessments? Do you feel, and, and how do you feel they were different from each other?
1: Oh, yeah. Well, oh well, I can report they don't care if you have your hands in your pockets when you go to SFAS. <laughs> uh, yeah, How no, about a cigar? About they, Do they, they
0: care about cigars? They, they didn't let me smoke
1: cigars. I don't know what that was all about. No, I I, I think maybe there was a smoking area, but um, it, no, it's, a, it's a good question that uh, we're very different selection courses. So when you go through the Ranger Indoctrination Program, today it's called RASP, uh, Ranger Assessment and Selection Program. But back when I went through it, when I went through RIP, it was basically a three-week smoke session. Like they just wanted to see—they wanted to see what you were made of. Are you a quitter or not? Um, and so there's some training that happens in RIP, but I mean, it's really—it's a—it's a smoke session. Um, they want—they want to see if you got the balls, if you have some—you know—intestinal fortitude, or you got gonna stick with it. Uh, when you go to Special Forces selection, they're selecting for something a little bit different. They want to see if you are self-motivated. Are you like a self-starter? Um, how do you do when you have limited instructions? Can can you kind of do things on your own? Can you think on your feet? Um, so, for instance, like when you do a road march and rip, it's a, it's a uh, in formation, and it's a forced march, and you like can't be more than one arm length behind the person in front of you, or they'll, or they'll kick you out and you fail the course. Um, and so that's how they they did a road march and rip. When you do it in, in SFAS, I swear to God, all they do is they call you out in the morning with your rucksack and they, they might weigh your rucksack, maybe they won't, and they'll say, this is a road march for an undetermined time, for an undetermined distance, you may begin. And you just follow the yellow cones through the pines of you know North Carolina. And um, so there's a lot of events like that. There's others where you have to string together a contraption With your squad, um, you know, like with telephone poles and fifty-five gallon drums and tires and things like that, and they're just they they don't tell you what to do. They're not looking over your shoulder. It's just kind of like, here's what you have to do. Are you going to do it or not? Um, So it's very hands off in that in that sense.
0: So I I'm taking the difference would be ranger. They want to see what you're made of, Uh, and special forces they want to see if you can complete not necessarily what you're made of, but if you will do the job with minimal supervision. And I think that's a big thing because Rangers are very much, like you said, very much lorded over, watched over. These Mm -hmm. guys, they're like, look, you're older. You'll either do it or you won't. And we don't give a shit either way. But
1: Yeah, in in special forces, I mean, you deploy in a 12-man team, in ODA, and there is so much work to be done. And your leadership, your, your team leader and your team sergeant, they're so busy it, themselves, they don't have time to supervise you and hold right. your hand like you're a private, like it is just like, hey, this is your job. And when, when we deployed um, to Iraq, um, my team sergeant maybe spot checked once in a while what I was up to, but I mean, the vast majority of the time, like he left me to my own devices and I trained the Iraqis the way I wanted to train them and did whatever the hell I wanted to do. Um, now what dyslexia, rank were you dyslexia. by now? <laughs> um, by the time I got to Iraq, I was a staff sergeant. Okay,
0: and and so yeah. let's let's talk about that real quick. When you're training the Iraqis, you're you're training their. Uh, I think they called them I SWATs. Uh, I SWAT,
1: yeah, Iraqi SWAT team, yeah. One,
0: one very good team, one very, I guess we can say mm-hmm. shitty team. Uh, ones that didn't yeah. care that were, but you became very close with the good team, and yeah, I did and more than just close you became um you became friends with the team leader mm-hmm. and you kind of came to a decision that you had noticed that maybe all the good guys had just left the other platoons and come over to this one to yeah. work and th- and they were ready to work and so yeah yeah
1: i i think so i
0: i i see this a lot through your book where i think you take a different approach not, I don't think necessarily because, like I said, when I talk to special forces guys, they think differently. Delta guys think differently than a normal soldier. They they aren't there just. Uh, they're not there f- to to just stomp and put boots to asses. They are there to figure out a real solution in a real situation. And uh, do you see that coming out in yourself more often? as you're, you know, coming back with a special force unit, because the way you even describe the area is different than how you describe it. When you were there as a Ranger, you're like, I see all the devastation and I see the roofs that have collapsed in on each other. And I remember blocks that were blown down and, and all these kind of things. So you even describe it differently than you did before.
1: Yeah, no, that's really interesting that you, you picked up on that. I don't think I even you know, consciously did that uh, when, I, when I wrote the book. Um, But yeah i I definitely saw things differently um i i I had a different mission very different mission the first time there i was doing direct action missions with a ranger platoon the second time i was there with an oda um doing this sort of combat fid uh foreign internal defense where we were training the swat team and then taking them out on operations and the overall mission was to kind of get them ready to run missions unilaterally as the americans were leaving pretty soon um so yeah i definitely my my approach changed Um, maybe it needed to evolve a little bit more. Uh, When I first got there, I wanted to train these Iraqis to be like a ranger platoon, which is totally the wrong approach. Um, That's not how, that's, trying to mirror foreign military units we train off of ourselves is a really bad idea, it doesn't work. But yeah, it was a very different context and uh, it it definitely requires a different way of thinking. Um, I think I was telling somebody recently when they they were asking me about this, you know, I literally heard people say in the past in Ranger Battalion that there is the Ranger way and there is the wrong way. So the the world is that black and white. Uh, but when you go into a, in a in a Special Forces team, the world isn't that black and white, and you have to improvise, and you have to see the nuances, and you're very much dealing with uh, other human beings. Um, it, it's not just you. You can't just knife hand people and say, hey, listen, fucker, do what I say. Like, like, nah, well, it, it I think you work. found
0: that out quickly with some of those ISWAT teams. <laughs> yeah, yeah. they were kind of doing, doing their own thing, and, and you talk about it where some of those guys are just doing whatever the fuck they want to do.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like you said, we had one platoon that was really shit hot and another that was, was pretty horrible. And um, the guys were horrible. Um, yeah, they, they didn't like me so much. I, I started waking them up at three in the morning and making them do undetermined,
0: yep, undetermined yeah. amount of time at an exactly. undetermined distance. Exactly,
1: yep, yep, continue uh, to walk until you don't see any more con.
0: Now, this is where I feel your book starts to transition, and you as a person start to transition. As I said that, but I, I want to go a little further in it, I feel like. At this point, as much fun as you're having with, with the I-SWAT guys that you're training and the missions that you're doing, and you're doing something different than Rangers, I I think you really become disillusioned over there. And you, yeah. you really start looking at the situation like, it doesn't matter because you talk about, well, I could go to Delta. That would be the next step up and do this. But what the fuck is the point of that? I feel like it'll still be the same bureaucratic bullshit. Just on a different level. It's, you know, just because you pour syrup on shit, don't make it pancakes. And that's the way you kind of start looking at everything is everyone tries to sell this rosier. And I'm talking all the way down from the top of the government. It's a rosier Iraq. It's a better place than we got here. Uh, We're doing better things than we were doing before. And I see in your writing, you really start to change that mentality of, It's not really different. No matter what, it doesn't really change. They're still tearing each other apart. The place is in fucking ruins. When is it going to change? Because it's only going to change because you even start talking about it may be time to get out. It may be time to do this the way I want to do it.
1: Yeah, I, I was becoming really disillusioned with it. for Some of the things that we talked about before that a policy decision had been made that did not in any shape or form resemble reality on the ground. And we all knew it. I mean, all of us knew, and I, I think I even talk about it in the book where I told my um, my team leader, uh, or the captain on our team, said something like, you know, when we leave Iraq, it's going to crumble, it's going to turn into a terrorist state. And he was like, well, yeah, that's just stays obvious. And I mean, we all knew, but we were kind of powerless to um, change it, that in the sense that a policy decision had already been made, one that was unrealistic. And you know, the, I don't have to go and prove that. We were right back in Iraq a couple of years later, um, as ISIS swept through, and all that, those areas that we had fought so hard for—Tal Afar, Mosul—they just felt like dominoes. And the, most of the security forces, I mean, they were literally empty suits. They dropped their, they dropped their uniforms and ran.
0: Well, and um, you, you go even further. It's not just those Mosul and things. You're talking about Kurdistan. I mean isis is knocking them down like they're dominoes yeah. when they come in there
1: yeah so all of those reports about how the uh you know the iraqi government had built capacity and they were ready for self-governance and i mean all of that was bullshit every every inch of it was bullshit and then it was also just the bureaucracy of the military started to wear on me um particularly in garrison where it, it, it's i know it sounds very odd to people but being a special forces soldier in garrison it was almost. Well, we used to say it was more big army than the big army. Um, just the the amount of micromanaging. Um, it, it was like these online training modules were the priority. All anyone cared about was like, are you green on med pros? Are you green on this tasking? And we're we're all about taskers, and we're making taskers for taskers, and then there's the master tasker that tracks all the other tasks It's like, it, it, it's like, what am I doing here?
0: I someone got a, a someone got a full bird for that. So just so you know, someone got wow. a full bird out of that thing.
1: Oh, I'm sure it made somebody's day. Oh, but yeah. It's very, it's very dehumanizing to feel like you're such a cog in the wheel. And I mean, I understand it's the army, it's a big machine, but I, I had this moment where I realized like I could wake up and go into work and give a hundred percent, or I could just stay in bed and not go into work at all. And it would have almost the same effect. Because every time I go into work and I try to make things a little bit better or I try to do things a little bit smarter, I get my pee pee and told we're not allowed to do that. <laughs> so it's like, why, why am I here as a person other than to be a warm body um, so that some major can get his promotion it's by saying he commands a company? It's like, like it feels like it's this big shell game at a certain point. It's kind of, and that's kind of a gross feeling. Um, and when you get to that point which I had reached at at that moment, you can't really be a special forces soldier anymore because you need to be a highly motivated guy to do that job. And I was no longer highly motivated Um, when the sergeant majors would give us these like war speeches and stand up on top of the podium. And I could just see the look in their eyes and I can see they don't even believe what they're saying themselves. And it's kind of moments like that where I realized like, it's time for me to leave this organization.
0: Do you ever believe that I guess the word would be betrayed in what you thought was going to happen and what actually happened, because you talk about that when you get back and you're getting, I think you were getting a bronze star and you had a bunch of people lined up and star majors asking, Hey, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? And like a ton of people in line were like, I'm getting the fuck out of here. And he was like, no, 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 it's done so good for me. And everyone's like, great. I'm glad it did good for you, but I have other plans and he continues to try and sell you at any point when you're getting out, cause you've made the decision. Do you ever feel like, do you ever feel like it wasn't worth it? I mean, I, I hope you don't feel that way, but did that ever no. cross your mind?
1: Not, not, not that, not that badly. No, that I, I feel like it's not worth it. Um, I, I feel that, you know, a lot of the things we did in the war and the, the way we prosecuted the war was perhaps not worth it. But as far as overall my time in the military, no, I feel that it was worth, it, and, and sure. I'm immensely proud to have served in Ranger Absolutely. Battalion and in Special Forces. Um, and, and what it, but at the risk of sounding like I'm looking for some sort of a silver lining, I say what really sticks with me is um, the friends I made and, and the people I got to serve alongside, and how fortunate I was I was to work with people like that. Uh, and this includes also the Iraqis that I worked with and the people, those guys who. Like, you know, they found me on Facebook, like we're friends today, and they send me pictures of their kids. Um, and if I was able to go to Iraq and give them a positive. Uh, picture of United States military and special forces and show opportunities that our countries can work together. I I mean, I, I think it's worth it. It's worthwhile in that sense, even if the the war itself was (laughs) fundamentally nonsensical.
0: So you get out, you decide um, you're going to go to school. What I want to ask you, though, real quick is let's put your political science degree to the test. What could we be doing different? We've been fighting that war for over 20 years now. You go over there as a civilian now or have gone over there as a civilian. Is there anything that we could be doing differently?
1: You're talking about the global war on terror.
0: The global war on terror
1: yeah so the the thing we could be doing differently is prosecuting the war with something we could call wisdom uh which is a little bit different than intelligence and what i mean by that is that we take a long-term approach that we accept that if we're going to fight this war um we're going to stay there for a long period of time and we're going to pursue the war in that regard that this is a long-term political project a long-term socio-political project Uh, What we have done is fought the war every year thinking this is the last year of the war. You know, that was a big finding that came out of a a big Pentagon study on on the Iraq war is that every commander that came into Iraq fought the war as if it was going to be over in eight months, and it wasn't. And we've seen the same thing in Afghanistan. I mean, no one expected we were going to be there, you know, almost 20 years later. So that would be the first thing is, is to accept that if we are going to do this type of military intervention that this is like a 50-year project like it's not something that we go in there six months and it's over or, or, or 10 years and it's over now we're talking about re-engineering an entire region of the middle east now whether that's right or wrong because this sounds dangerously like colonialism doesn't it um that the the, the ethics or the morality of it is sort of another question um but from just a pragmatic strategic view of of what is effective we got to do these conflicts as if they're going to be over in six
0: months. But I think you would agree that people in government, Congress, senators, they don't want to hear that. They want no. something that they can take to their people and go, look what I did. Yep. Look what I helped yeah. out. And it never changes off that. If, if you don't look at it in a long-term strategy, uh, they think that if we roll one guy up, that it's going to break down everyone they don't realize that it's splinter cells everywhere. It's, it's I want to know if you agree with me. It's the most decentralized centralization ever known to man, this war on terror.
1: Yeah, and, and well, the only centralizing thing may be, I mean, we can argue a radical Islam, but we can also argue anti-Americanism is the thing that binds all of these different groups together. Um, And by us being there and by us having a presence in these various countries, it's a way to galvanize these groups to action Um, that they they don't want a foreign imposition in their country. Um,
0: And, And I agree. And that's what I mean by the biggest decentralization, centralization. What I mean is, if you look all over the world, I don't think that you could go. I don't think there's a country you could go to anymore where you won't find uh, either a terrorist network, a terrorist cell, or even lone wolves working by themselves. I don't think there's a country you could go to anymore doing that. And when you have that much, it's not like when we go into World War II and we're fighting the Nazis and we're fighting the Italians and we're fighting this kind of stuff. You're fighting literally every country. You don't know where they're at. They're, they're stuck everywhere in the world. And I don't know how you defeat something so spider webbed out with just one answer, because I think their answer is just roll them up. And that's not, I don't think that's the way it's going to work in an, in an intelligence sense. And it's just not, there's too many different people trying to do too many different things.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's fundamentally a political problem, a socio political problem. And the grievances that people have in these countries have to be addressed Um, frequently what happens is you have a dictator or you have a king or some sort of autocrat some sort of authoritarian government. um, That just squashes the populace keeps them as poor as they can um, does nothing to improve conditions for people in that country and that creates animosity and that animosity expresses itself in all sorts of different ways um there i mean a lot we don't have to get into all of it, but i mean the the Syrian civil war, for instance, i mean it started off in parts of Syria that were impoverished um These were not rich people by any means, and you could argue that had the Syrian government paid a little bit more attention to these rural areas, maybe the war could have been prevented there's There's a lot more to it of course um but it's a it's a complicated situation, and yeah, going around the world and, and sending in special forces alone is not going to solve these problems. It has to be a holistic, whole-of-government approach um, to resolving them. Um, and we have to tailor our approach in each specific country. But then we would also hope, of course, that we have um, a unified uh, governmental approach in, in the sense of our own country, right? That, that there's a, co- a, a coherence to our own government and right. how we approach these things um, leading up to a, uh, a grand strategy of sorts. Um, But I think there's just something uh, there's something dark to be said uh, when you see President Obama and President Trump both tried to put the brakes on some of these foreign adventures uh, Two presidents who are very different from one another, about as different as as possibly (laughs) two people could be. And, And and neither one of them were able to pull us out of the global war on terror. None of them were able to shut it down. And I think as Americans we should ask ourselves why that is.
0: Well, and I think it's a lot, like I said, I think it's a lot to put on these special forces and these special operators. You're putting the weight of the world on yeah. them for an undetermined amount of time for an undetermined distance. Yeah. You really are. Yeah. yeah. And and yeah, that absolutely. has to go back to that thing where it wears. When when can they stop
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know, when can they go from orange? to green or red to green, you know, when can they finally, you know, live their life? You get out, you go to school, you get a Ivy league education. Uh, you talk about it in there that, that, you know, before someone wants to talk about anything, make sure that they've done it. I, I got that kind of gist from you before you talk about what someone's doing, make sure you've done it or make sure that you've tried to do it. I think the example that you used for Columbia was before, um, you say that they're just liberal or they're just an Ivy league. They've done a lot for veterans to help them get their degrees and stuff like that. And yeah, so... yeah,
1: there, there, there is. And I, I criticize the, the, some of the particularities of, of the college that I went to. And, um, again, it was just a real culture shock for me coming out of the military. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So, and I, I write about that and maybe some of my criticisms were a little unfair or maybe I was a little bit too harsh. Um, but I do try to point out to people that, you know, before you get too hard on college education or too hard on Columbia I mean, also keep in mind that this is a school that has really welcomed veterans and and has really helped a lot of guys out. Um, I don't know how many hundreds uh, I, there's probably like 300 of us at Columbia when I went through um, at any given time. So just keep that in mind as well. This, this isn't this isn't a university as liberal as it is. It's, it's not one that is exclusionary. Um, towards the military or towards veterans.
0: So I want to move into your kind of journalism career. We've talked a lot about the Middle East. We talked a little bit about Syria. Um, you started going over there uh, with your. Uh, well, let me backtrack for a second. You have a child. Um, you finish your degree. Uh, you at this time have you have you gotten a divorce yet?
1: Um, by the time I was finishing up at college, yet. Yeah. At-
0: college right yeah so um you start doing investigative journalism you're going over to the Middle East you're going to Kurdistan you have hooked up somehow with this guy George um that seems like an absolute I'm gonna say it. he seems like a piece of shit to me uh like a a giant piece of shit yeah
1: that's a fair description
0: yeah uh you know so you go over there you you start seeing it from a I think even a different perspective than you had, how we talked about when you went from a ranger to special forces, you had a different perspective. And I think now you have an even more different perspective looking at it because you talk about when you're over there, you're, you're seeing things. You, you, like you said, I went over there and I didn't have a platoon backing me up and I didn't have air support. So if, if shit went sideways on me, it went sideways. And you said you had to learn how to talk a lot over there and, and how to get yourself out of stuff. And you see what it was like for the people on the ground every day, yeah. anything. And I don't want to beat this dead horse. Cause we've talked about the Middle East a lot. Is there anything that stands out from all that when you were working over there in your mind?
1: There are so many things, so many things that, that come back to me. Um, so many memories. I think that one of the big things that comes out from from this particular experience in covering that is a journalist is all the people who live there, and they don't get to go home. Uh, they don't have a blue passport. Like, I, I'm there, I don't want to say as a tourist, I was there as a reporter, but at the same time, you kind of feel like you're a war tourist because you're going there, you're working on your stories, you're interviewing people, cruising around, um, and the, the Kurdish people and the Syrian people. They they have such hospitality, they they will go out of their way, even though even poor people, they'll go out of their way to try to take care of you. And at the end of the day, you know, I'm getting back on a plane. I'm heading back to what comparatively. What is a paradise in the best country in the entire world that has ever existed in world history. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm going, I'm going back to the United States and these folks, they're, they're lucky to have a home to go to at all. I mean, I saw refugees who had crossed the border illegally. And it, it, they were just rolling the dice to get out of Syria and to, to run into Iraq, into Kurdish Iraq. I had met, I, I, I mean, I interviewed a Syrian guy who, he, well, he was from Iraq, got beat up by Saddam's guys, went to Syria. The Civil War kicks off. He he mentioned he was being hunted by death squads over there. He mentioned, mentioned Shahida, um, the ghosts. Uh, then fled back as a refugee for the third time, fleeing back to Iraq. And so I, I met, I, I mean, I met people in refugee camps and interviewed them people who were at the end of their rope. They got nothing. They're just trying to survive day to day them and their, their four kids and their
0: wife and everything else. So what I really want to talk about in your journalism is, and this was another chapter that really stood out to me <clears throat> was when you start talking about stuff that's going on in the military these days, And the big one that you started with was sexual assault. But you didn't take it in the normal journalist sexual assault way. You put it on its head and you talked about a giant case that involved a staff sergeant that was sexually assaulting his troops, not in just garrison, but in a combat forward area. So if you can talk about this story blew my mind when I read this, I, I thought there's no way. And then when you start laying it out and you start talking to people, you notice that a lot of other people are telling you there's no way that happened. Cause you yourself thought that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I was absolutely one of those guys. Um, and I'll I'll tell briefly a story when I was in the army and we had guys who were going through like shark classes or or there's some sort of class where they train guys, people in the unit to be advocates for sexual assault survivors, um, to help them report to their chain of command and things like that. Um, And I made a joke to one of them at the time. I said something like, well, you know, thankfully we don't have to worry about that here in special forces because we don't have women. And he was like, nah, you'd be surprised, man. How many guys get drunk in the barracks and, you know, they wake up uh, in the morning having been raped by their battle buddy. And I was like, come on, man, get serious. That doesn't happen. I
0: think you described and, it a little more graphically in the book.
1: Yeah, I did. I absolutely did. <laughs> yeah. And the years go by, and that's, that, that that whole story, that whole incident stuck out in my mind, and I – when I was working journalistically many years later, I asked around about it, about male-on-male sexual assault in the Army. Like, is that does that really happen? And very quickly, I was put in touch with somebody who, a, a male soldier, um, Joe Barnes, who had been sexually assaulted in the 101st Airborne. And I, that story really sucked me in. It, it impacted me um, and, it, and it, it stuck with me. That story sticks with me to this day. And there's still unanswered questions about the story to this day, but the, the long and short of it is that there was a squad leader in the 101st, a guy named uh, Johnny Santoro, and he was sexually assaulting the soldiers in his platoon and really all across his unit. And whenever the, there would be some sort of a scandal um, when somebody got you know sexually assaulted and it started to leak out what the 101st did was they moved this soldier around they moved him. Well, a lot of a couple of people described it to me as uh being like the catholic church the way they moved pedophile priests around to try to hide them and hide their crimes but that's the same sort of way they moved santoro around the 101st and so because there's no accountability the problem gets worse and worse and worse and so the bulk of the story that i wrote was a deployment to FOB uh, kushman in afghanistan with uh, this particular platoon where Johnny was the senior squad leader, the weapons squad leader, and um, just the reign of terror that he wrought upon this platoon. These guys were in heavy combat, they were they were getting mortared, just about every day, they were going out on combat patrols all the time. Um, So they're they're all exhausted and tired all the time. Um, And then by night, they're also being uh, hunted by a sexual predator in their own platoon Um, this guy took a liking to the younger white soldiers in his platoon and would try to solicit sexual favors he would uh he would smoke them uh give them physical um physical exercises to do when they did not reciprocate his sexual advances And he would force himself on people it it resulted in a lot of problems um to say the least and uh, the unit covered it up as long as they possibly could and my source my my main source i mean there were probably two dozen people i talked to when i wrote that article but um my main source who i mentioned joe barnes he passed away about halfway through the process of researching that article uh unexpectedly and um there's still a lot of questions about that story things that don't quite add up like why was this guy why was a staff sergeant so protected in the 101st in 4th Brigade what was it about this guy because I was a staff sergeant I know we don't count for shit. no one cares <laughs> no one cares about a staff sergeant con you're, you're you're an e6 very low ranking NCO but why was this particular e6 so protected in the unit and why was he moved around the way that he was and why was he under the same command team over and over again and why did that command team stick together even after the scandal and they served in the same unit in hawaii afterwards it's like hmm i wonder what's going on here how in the world could could this staff sergeant have so much leverage over his chain of command how could something like that happen So there are there are questions that I may never have the answer to, Um, you know, you can read the article I wrote, or you can read the the chapter in my book about it. Um, But it's fucking horrifying. It really is. And as proud as I am of the US military, I am really not at all proud at how they have handled sexual assault, Um, be be it against men or women, I, I hear from female survivors as well. And I mean, believe me, they don't have it any better. I mean, the system fucks them over as well.
0: Well, and I'm glad you did that because that's a great segue into the next What I wanted to talk about. You've taken a lot of heat for doing what you did in the past and now what you do now. Who you were then and Mm -hmm. who you are now. Now, some of your close friends have never left your side, but you've had a lot of people turn their back on you.
1: Absolutely. And and
0: ask you how the fuck you – well, first off, the only question is who the fuck do you think you are doing that is a big question. And number two is, why do you think you should do that? Who are you? And and they even, you mentioned it specifically, what are you, some white knight coming in here trying to save everyone? And you say that you're more like the dark knight and that the white knight can kiss your ass, but.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I absolutely understand why some people feel that way. And I have also come to terms with the fact that, you know, I can't be a uh, a cheerleader. For the units that I served in, um, even even though I'd li- I'd like to be in some occasions, I, I have no problem cheerleading when they do a good job, you know. Um, but I recognize that when you're an investigative journalist and you're writing about, you know, you're writing about the uh, oftentimes the dirty laundry, the things that these units don't want uncovered, they don't want shared publicly. Um, someone has to do that job. Um, someone has to air those things out. Otherwise. Like the, the case we just mentioned with Sartoro uh, Santoro things just get worse and worse. Um, but I understand on a personal level, like I can't be friends with everybody all the time. Like I kind of have to be that asshole and that, that is who I am. And, and, you know, I, I think if I were to look at it on, on a personal level, I think we can look back at that ambush in Afghanistan that we talked about Okay. that the worst, the worst things that could have happened to me in life, they already happened. Like whatever shade they had to throw on me, they already did. So that that fear just wasn't there for me, maybe in the way that it would be for somebody else. But I don't write these articles simply to be contrarian or to to write them because um, I'm desperate for attention or because I'm trying to hurt anybody. You know, I write these articles because I think the military needs to be better than this. Uh, I, I don't think it's okay that we have sexual predators in the ranks I don't think that it's okay um, that we have people who lie about how our soldiers fight and how they die in combat. I'm not, I'm not cool with that. Um, there, are, there are a lot of great soldiers out there, but there are also some bad actors in the ranks, and the military doesn't always do a very good job of policing the own.
0: So do you think with, with that the way it is, because you kind of brushed over it, but uh, your main informant during the case that we talked about he died under circumstances that haven't been necessarily completely fulfilled by the family correct they haven't really necessarily said
1: you're, you're talking about Joe Barnes yeah yeah i um the, the the family has never really made like a public statement about it or anything like that i, I do know that the gentleman had some substance abuse issues, and it's one of those things that you know. And I think anyone who is a veteran in, in one of these combat units has these friends who have passed away unexpectedly. And no, it's it's not really a suicide, but it it's still the after effects of war and the trauma that they went through catching up with them many years later.
0: Uh, well, he's not the only one to die from that case, correct? Um. I thought there was another suicide. I can't remember. I, I um, might be thinking wrong, but I thought there was a it, it,
1: there, there there were there were some suicide attempts.
0: Yeah. Okay. Um,
1: several, several several soldiers in that platoon, um, attempted to take their own lives, uh while they were still on active duty, um, because what they were experiencing was so intense.
0: Yeah, it, it was uh, it was a crazy story. Another one that I wanted to talk to you about real quick because I know you've reported on it a little bit is uh, everything that's going on at Fort Bragg right now. And then I want to touch briefly on Fort Hood. I don't know if you've done any investigation into that kind of stuff, but with Fort Bragg where we're finding people out on, on you know training grounds and stuff dead and, and not just one person, multiple people dead, um, are, are we starting to see a trend all around the world of this? Because everyone thought it was just Fort Hood. Now we're seeing Fort Bragg. We're seeing other ones pop up all over
1: i think it might be a bit of a mistake to see this as a as a trend that is just happening right now okay um fort Fort bragg has always been pretty dirty uh fort campbell unit has a a bit of a history for cover-ups uh fort hood always had a lot of crime there um so i don't know that these things are necessarily new there have always been soldiers committing suicides dying on post dying off post um a lot of these military bases are high crime areas they have a lot of criminal activity going on around them um so yeah i, I don't have any statistics in front of me to, to necessarily prove my point one way or the other but i i think that anyone who's been around fort hood fort bragg Fort benning could tell you that you know th- there's a lot of C D activity going on in these places and a lot of soldiers unfortunately get sucked up into it um, but nonetheless, are we seeing some of the downstream social effects that twenty years of war has had on the military? Probably, you know that probably plays into it on some level. The uh, PTSD, the traumatic brain injury, uh, all the things that go along with that, the substance abuse issues, um, all of that plays into it. I mean, it's impossible for it not to. Um, and so, yeah, it's incredibly sad uh, what we've seen or with. Fort Hood in Fort Bragg in in recent weeks and months with all the soldier deaths and soldier suicides. Um I, I'm I'm not totally convinced that it's something new. I mean at, at Fort Campbell we had rashes of suicides. I mean, there just some really gnarly, really ugly stuff that that has happened.
0: Yeah, when I was at the twenty fifth I had uh, a guy that, that I worked with with the when I was a Fort Observer I was sliced out to an infantry unit. He uh he killed his wife. He ended up going to Leavenworth. She was pregnant and everything. I mean, it happened a couple times while I was there. When I was stationed at Wechuca, uh, it happened there. We had uh, we had someone. I mean, and that's a tiny post in the middle of the Arizona desert. So
1: if uh, if you look uh, in the early years of the War on Terror, like 2002, 2003, there was a rash of like three or four guys on Fort Bragg who killed their wives. Uh, one of them was a Delta operator shot and killed his wife and then shot and killed himself. Um, another, and then a couple others, I think, at least one other was a, was a green beret. So yeah, I think maybe it's a bit of a mistake to think that this is just a, a suddenly, you know, emerging trend over the last year or so, it, it, because this stuff has been going on for quite a while.
0: Well, so I stated that, but do you think that that's what maybe the government thinks or the veterans affairs thinks that this is a, a just a recent trend? I. Ah.
1: I don't know. I, I think that it may have to do with the media picking up on some of these stories, some high profile stories. And I'm not trying to like blame the media like they invented this problem or something. Um, in, in a way, it's a good thing, actually, that they focused on Vanessa Guillen in um at Fort Hood, um, because all that media attention led ultimately, I, I believe led ultimately to her, her murderer being apprehended. Um, so it's a good thing that these things are focused on and they're already try- trying to make some changes like how we report AWOLs. like is that person really AWOL, or have they been killed or have they been held against their like like we were automatically reporting these soldiers as AWOLs, being absent without leave um when we they were really a missing person and, and no one really had any idea so there are already some changes being made um but man, it, it's an ugly thing and we live in a dark world in, in some
0: ways well, let's talk about a little brighter we've We've gone pretty much over your career now, not only are you an investigative journalist, but you also write uh fiction books and you thought mm-hmm. when you started writing these fiction books, who better but a guy that's been there <laughs> uh you had uh you had seen some other people's stuff, read some other people's stuff, and you thought, you know what I can do that uh so let's talk about the Deckard novels for a little bit,
1: sure, sure. Yeah. Well, just like you said, I came out of the military and I've always been a big fan of, you know, action adventure novels. And, you know, I grew up reading them and some of them are, are quite good and some of them are not. And I when you look at it, it's like how many former special ops guys are actually writing these books or how many veterans, period, full stop, are, are writing are writing these books? And very few, uh, if any. Now, now there's a couple. I mean, now there's uh, the former SEAL that writes some novels. Um, but at, at any rate, I mean, I, I figured, hey, why don't I, I take my stab at it? Why don't I give it a try? And um, this was also, you know, kind of a crazy period of my life. I had gotten out of the military. I was a father, I was a husband, I was full-time in, in college. Uh, I was I had stood up a, a company. I, I was doing a lot of reporting. And then on top of that, I said, hey, why don't I try becoming a novelist? Um, so it, it was probably not the best decision um to flood my life the way i did well we'll talk Um, about in our
0: next conversation what happened to you when you did that
1: yeah yeah take 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 days one step at a time guys you don't got to do it all the first year you get out of the military um but no i really enjoyed writing those books there's four of them so far um they're about a private military company i decided to do that instead of if i wrote about like rangers or special forces i feel like i have to play by the rules you know, like, is this accurate or not? Right. But if you write about a private military company, you feel like you can kind of write whatever the hell you want and have right. that kind of freedom. So, um, yeah, there's four, there's four books in the series. Um, and then uh, there's a fifth one that is like halfway written that I hope to get out in 2021. Um, I'm very fortunate. I have, you know, readers who they hound me on a you near know, daily basis. Like, why isn't this book out yet? <laughs> I'm like, I'm so sorry, guys. Um, but I uh, no, I I I love writing, and it's something I could never see myself not doing, you know.
0: Well, can you give us a little bit of background on the story of it?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the the first one is called Reflective Fire. It's about a um, a guy who's essentially a, a mercenary, and he gets recruited by a cabal. Um, this is very much. It's sort of based on the real life events. Uh, surrounding General Smedley Butler, who, if you go and read your history, he was a a war hero, an American war hero, and a cabal on Wall Street tried to hire him to uh, essentially run a fascist coup in the United States, and uh, Smedley Butler um, actually played along with it long enough to learn what it was they were trying to do, um, and and then he exposed all of it. Um, So he's he's a real American hero. Um, and so Reflexive Fire is sort of based on that notion. Um, what if, you know, a, really group, a group of really bad guys tried to recruit a soldier to run a, a, a coup um, and he decided, hey, I'm going to get inside this organization, and then blow it up from the inside out. What would that look like? And that's what Reflexive Fire is. Uh, then the, the sequel, Target Deck, is um, it, it takes this private military company and, and our, our would be hero, Deckard to Mexico. And uh, in Mexico, he's um, been hired by a a mayor of a small town, actually, uh, to help her secure the area from drug cartels. And of course, everything goes haywire and he's in way over his head. And um, it's very much based actually off of the Special Operations Task Force in Iraq that I was a part of. And we were talking about hitting time sensitive targets before. I, I kind of took that model and applied it to You know, what if the United States or what if special operations went to war with drug cartels south of the border? What would that look like? How would would that unfold? Um, And that's what that novel tries to answer. And then the third one is quite a bit different as uh, the hero uh, Deckard is infiltrating uh, another group of mercenaries. And they're mostly uh, former SEAL Team 6 guys and then a few uh, people of other backgrounds that you'll find out about in the book he's trying to infiltrate this rogue group of mercenaries who are running around doing uh, assassinations. They're assassinating pro-democratic leaders um, around the world. Um, they're basically fanning the flames of the Arab Spring in some countries, and then trying to smother them in others. Um, just a really bad group of guys who are committing war crimes and things like this. And he's there to infiltrate the group, find out who they're working for, and then again, kind of blow it up from the inside out. Um, I, I'm, I'm proud of that one, that's a, that's a cool book. It's a, a lot of interesting action in it and a lot of stuff that, again, that I tore from reality um, and put into that one. And then the fourth one, Grey Matter Splatter, is uh, it takes place almost entire, yeah, entirely really in the Arctic. Um, I have been, done did a lot of reading about Arctic security and the importance of the Arctic to um, geopolitics and to american national security and how it's just fascinating how countries interact in the arctic and it's an area that is so large the distance is so great and so barren it's a part of the world most of us very we don't really think about very often um but there's actually a lot going on there and a lot of intense jockeying for position in the arctic and so this book is a a, another high octane (laughs) mercenary fiction novel Set against that backdrop in the Arctic and in a part of the world where maybe you think nothing is going on, but actually there's a hell of a lot going on there. And, and it's a critical, um, it's a critical region for our national security.
0: Well, I, I just love the order of them, how you start out, you know, reflexive fire, we'll respond to some stuff, target deck. All right. Direct action. We're getting a little more than gray matter splatter. Can we get the the, (laughs) could we get the fifth title? Is it you know like yeah yeah What's the fifth title?
1: The the fifth title is Persona Non Grata, and uh, oh, I'm so
0: disappointed because I was expecting to be like I don't know headless zombies or something.
1: (laughs) No, it's um it's actually like a prequel. It's uh, when the protagonist is is younger, um coming out of coming out of those deployments over to Afghanistan, and um. He's fighting um, human traffickers in the United States.
0: Oh, okay.
1: And what happens in the book, it's a vigilante tale. He, he links up with, um, through accident, links up with an older Special Forces veteran who's going around and murdering child molesters. And uh, as a cop, you, you might kind of cringe when you hear this, but the book is about how the protagonists are hiding the murders in the statistics. So there is like an ungodly number of people who die by drownings in the United States. It's something like twenty, thirty thousand people a year. Now, if you look at the number of, of qualified medical examiners who can do forensic autopsies in the United States, it's like it's very small. It's like 150 people or something like this. So they are not autopsying every single cadaver. They're not even looking closely at every single one of them. So if you wanted to kill some really bad people, there are things you could do to hide those bodies inside the national death statistics. And um, that's, I, I guess that's a little teaser for what that book is about. It's a little creepy, um, but you've never read a vigilante book that's going to be like this one, I'll tell you that.
0: Yeah, and, and, you know, you have a huge following behind it. Do you have a, a favorite writer of books like this?
1: Oh, my gosh, there, there, are, there are so many. Um, I actually grew up reading Mac Bolin novels uh, Don Pendleton's, uh, works. Um, nowadays I don't get so much of a chance to read these types of books, but I'll say, um, Mark Greeney is very good. I-, I like his work a lot. He writes the Gray Man series. Okay. Um, which is about a, an assassin. Um, he's very good.
0: I'm a big uh, James Rollins fan.
1: I've read some of his work as really good. Um, Brad Thor is also done. Some Brad really Thor good is good. Stuff. Yeah.
0: Um, I, I really enjoy the James Rollins Sigma series stuff. I think I've read one of them. I think I've read one of them. Yeah, I think he's like a veterinarian in real life. Like that's his Really? Yeah, that's like his full time job and, and and then he writes these these crazy like government books and stuff like that. So
1: there's um, there's the the Dead Fix series, which I read over the last couple of years um which is there's two authors involved i can't remember their names off the top of my head but it's dead six um and it's also mercenaries uh in sort of a near future alternate history sort of setting but it, it, they are very very good those guys are really good at what they do
0: well i got a i got a buddy if you see the book behind me time slingers uh he was one of the first people i ever interviewed on the show and he is a writer he wrote this book time slingers about people that jump back and forth between time to stop certain events in history or to change them before they happen. Like the JFK assassination and stuff. And, uh, I've got extra copy. So I'll send you a copy of it. You can read it. It's okay. a quick read. Okay. It's like a day to read. It's uh, it's really good, but I think that's about it. I think we've covered a lot of your life tonight. Is there anything that you want to promote and then I'll get into where everyone can find everything. Man,
1: I, I mean, I really appreciate the opportunity. You know, I guess the only thing I, I really have to promote is, you know, I run a weekly uh, live stream and podcast uh, with my friend Dave Park called the Teamhouse, and we interview special operations soldiers, uh, veterans, and uh, members of the intelligence community, people out of the CIA, and so forth um, on that show every week. Um, it's long, it's long form, long interviews. Uh, really take the time to, you know, dig just like just like what you're doing, man. Um you know the deal. really try to um get into the subject matter. If there's a book to read, you know, just like, you know, I really appreciate you doing so much work for this show. Oh, absolutely. Um, Dave and I Dave and I we try to read every single book. If the first if the guest has a book, we try to read it. Um and I think we have read it every time. Um so yeah, we we are very much kind of cut from the same cloth in that. Um and you know we we also have a good time doing it. We we have drinks. It's very conversational. Yes, we try yes to have you those.
0: do. <laughs> and and <laughs> even I've seen when you don't want to have drinks, he goes ahead and pours drinks for you. So
1: there, yeah, there, there's been a couple of episodes where uh, maybe I
0: had one too many. Well, I by the end of it, I'm like, yeah, yeah. So, guys, I think that's going to be about it. Listen, uh, check out this book, Murphy's Law. Uh, it is absolutely amazing. You can get it on Amazon. You can get it on Kindle. It has an audio book, and I think it's read by you, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, I narrated yeah. it.
0: Uh, you also have... <laughs> All of the Deckard novels over here, you have Reflexive Fire, Target Deck, Direct Action, Grey Matter Splatter. You can find those on Kindle. You can find them on Amazon. Um, You can find them pretty much anywhere on the internet. Just put in Deckard novels. You can put in uh, Jack Murphy. Although I will suggest, make sure you put in Jack Murphy Special Forces or Jack Murphy Writer because there is another Jack Murphy parading himself out around there. Uh, yeah,
1: it is. There's a, it's a political guy. Yeah. Um, but no, 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 no relation. Um, I'm Jack Murphy, the, the writer, the journalist.
0: Yeah. So make sure you put that in your search just so that you go right to him. Uh, that's going to be it for Jack tonight. If you want more of us, you can find us on Twitter at double Speak DJ. You can find us on Facebook at the DTD podcast, and you can find us on our YouTube channel at the DTD podcast. Guys, we do this every week, and we enjoy this so much. Really go check this guy out. It's absolutely fantastic, not just the books, but read into his uh, journalism that he is doing all over the world. It's absolutely fantastic. His girlfriend, wife now, is also a journalist around the world and has some very interesting things. Also, you can check out the Team House. It's a live stream on YouTube every week. Like I said, this was going to be a great episode for the first one of 2021. I was so happy to do it. That's Jack. I'm DJ. This has been the DTD Podcast. We'll catch you on the next one, guys. We'll see you later.